Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, welcome everyone to the annual economic forecast here at the Commonwealth Club. My name is David Limeseeder, Senior Vice President for Bank of America and member of the Commonwealth Board of Governors. It is my pleasure to serve as chair and introduce today's event. Today's program is titled the Annual Walter E. Holdley Bank of America Economic Forecast. And it is named in honor of Dr. Walter Holdley, who was a former chief economist for Bank of America and a former president of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Today's program is sponsored by Bank of America, and we are proud to now introduce both our moderator and speakers. First, we have Michael J. Boskin, professor of economics at Stanford University and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He was chairman of George H.W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors from 1989 to 1993 and headed the so-called Boskin Commission, whose recommendations have helped transform statistical agencies, improve their measurement of inflation, real GDP, and productivity. He's advised four presidents of the United States and leaders of the United Kingdom, Germany, India, and China. He is also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Welcome, Michael. <laughs> Additionally, we have Maurice Obsfeld, professor of economics at UC Berkeley and a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In 2014 through 15, he was a member of President Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. And from 2015 to 2018, he served as chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. He is active as a research fellow for the Center for Economic Policy Research, as well as a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Please welcome Maurice. Our moderator, Ann E. Harrison, is an economist and Bank of America Dean of the Haas School of Business, the second woman to lead this top-ranked business school. Harrison came to Haas by way of University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, where she was a professor of business economics and public policy. Before joining Wharton in 2012, she was the Director of Development Policy at the World Bank, where she co-managed a team of 300 researchers and staff. Please welcome Anne. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Uh, I'm going to start with a question for both of you. Uh, the organizers of the World Economic Forum in Davos held a few weeks ago used the term polycrisis to describe a looming convergence of global risks, including world inflation, the war in Ukraine, the climate crisis. But according to the Financial Times, the consensus among experts at Davos seemed to be that things are looking up for the global economy. Would you agree that things are looking up for either the U.S. or the rest of the world? Dr. Boskin, would you like to go first and then sure. Dr. Obsfeld? If by looking up we mean the last few months relative to what was being forecast before that, yes, things on balance are looking up. Uh, the, six months ago, people were, were forecasting a very high likelihood of a recession in the U.S., perhaps a deep one in Europe. 
uh, and uh, there was still uncertainty about China opening its pace. Uh, but since then, much of the data is looking up. The Fed's close to the end of its interest rate hikes. They usually take 12 to 18 months to affect the real economy of output and employment. Uh, there are some other positive signs, but uh, with China opening up and, uh, and Europe seeming to weather the forecast of a really difficult winter uh, with imports from the US and, and Qatar, but then also a warm winter has helped too, so the energy crisis in Europe seems to have been <coughs> muted. Uh, all that said, there are some other disturbing signs. The last few months, consumers have been pulling back. Uh, housing is in, uh, is in bad shape because of uh, the tripling of mortgage interest rates. So there are some signs, there are some pros and cons, but on balance, things are looking up. I think uh, a big chunk of the forecast now in terms of probability is to either skirt recession with a slowdown or to have a mild recession. Uh, I think most people have reduced the probability of uh, something severe and long-lasting, but we shouldn't rule it out. We've had occasion where we've looked like we were out of the, starting to get out of the woods and uh, that, didn't, uh, that didn't hold, and we wound up in a deeper recession later. So on balance, yes. Dr. Obsfeld, you've been quoted as saying that there was a greater than 50-50 chance that there'd be a recession in 2023. You said this back in December. How do you feel now? Well, I, I, I would like to make it more interesting by disagreeing more with Mike, but I, but I really can't. I, I still think that there, the odds of a recession emerging at some point uh, next year are, are pretty good. But, you know, I think the, the sort of recession, non-recession dichotomy is a little bit misleading, uh, you know, to focus on that. Uh, we're clearly going to have a slowdown next year relative to the past year in the U.S., um, uh, an even bigger slowdown in Europe. Um, China will grow more quickly, for sure, compared to what they did under zero COVID, and that is going to boost Asia. But there are parts of the world like Latin America which are facing uh, widespread political crises and probably lower growth. So I think, I think all in all, it's going to be a tough year. Um, you know, uh, alone among uh, advanced, major advanced economies, the UK is forecast to have negative growth by the IMF. But uh, we'll see what happens. Is, are, we, are we seeing a false dawn, as, as, as has happened in the past? Or will we, will we have a soft landing? Um, if we do have a soft landing, that, that's going to be a very rare event by the standards of past history. Thank you. So the, this, these next series of questions are for you, Dr. Boskin, but I'm sure that Dr. Obsfeld will Great. have an opinion on them. So the Fed officials met yesterday. Um, what, were you surprised by their decision? What, what, what would you have done? No, I think it was the right move. Um, uh, looking back, uh, they're quite late in starting to raise uh, their, their target interest rate, the short-run Fed funds rate. Uh, I wrote in the spring of two, 2021, not quite two years ago, that the additional fiscal stimulus and continued monetary stimulus were going to likely lead to inflation and then slow growth as they had to react. So I think they're probably, I don't know, nine months too late to get started. Uh, you know, there was so much uncertainty at the beginning of COVID how bad would this be? How deep would it be? How long would it last? Was the early apparent rapid recovery from a very deep hole going to continue? Uh, all, that, uh, all that uncertainty, I think, led to a bit of over-insurance by the monetary and fiscal authorities. 
But I think by, uh, by mid-2021, it was pretty clear that they were behind the curve and they took a while to, to adjust. I said at the time that I thought they'd get up to around 4.5% and reconnoiter. And I think that's more or less what they did. They got up to it fairly rapidly from a late start. And uh, usually you have to get the short-term Fed funds interest rate above the rate of inflation for a while to actually uh, have a good chance of bringing inflation down. We've seen it come down some. It's inching down on a trailing 12-month basis the last few months. It's been uh, better than that, but there's so much uh, uncertainty about the seasonal adjustments, and there's so many swings to the headline number from booming energy prices to collapsing energy prices. So the Fed looks at what's called the core rate, the personal consumption expenditures deflator. I'm sorry to use techno language, but it's uh, not the, exactly the CPI that's more commonly known. And they try to look at what's happening as you strip out food and energy prices to underlying inflation. Uh, and goods prices have been coming down, especially in energy. But the, the, the big problem is that inflation has spread to services. And that's, that's going to take a little while longer to get down. Yeah, I mean, to put everything in perspective, um, you know, the last few years have been almost unprecedented in terms of the scale of the economic adjustments and shocks that, you know, we've seen in the global economy. I mean, you really have to go back to the demobilizations and the reconstruction after World War I and World War II <laughs> to, see, to, to have something comparable. And of course, we didn't have the level of destruction uh, 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 certainly, a physical capital that we we uh, we we saw. We had some human capital certainly destroyed, uh, but, and then on top of that, you had the Ukraine war and the sanctions and all the dislocations those have caused. So, it's a very hard environment for policymakers and for making for making forecasts about what's going to happen. Now, having said that, I agree with. Uh, uh, Professor Boskin, that the you know the 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 Fed was really late to the game, you know clearly by the fall of 2021 it was obvious that inflation was running at a dangerous level and it's hard to understand why they didn't move more quickly. That put them into a position where they were really playing catch up and scrambling, and probably engineering a. Um, much steeper uh, pace of interest rate hikes than they would have done otherwise. And that's one of the reasons why I still think, you know, a as we see these play out uh, after the, you know, year to 18 months that, that we think they will take, we may, we may see more effects than even we have seen so far. And we have seen, seen some effects so far. You know, manufacturing has been in contraction for three months now. There are a number of very negative leading indicators. Um, I was kind of surprised by the um, sort of soft tone of Chair Powell's remarks, uh, given, given what had gone before with the Fed basically trying to telegraph, resolve, and sort of make up for its tardiness in, in addressing the inflation problem. I mean, he basically let, left the, didn't slam the door on the idea which markets have embraced that the Fed will cut this year. I, I don't think that's really likely, personally. Um, and the effect of that you can see in the stock market, you can see it in the bond market, you can see in mortgage rates falling today, and that, that works exactly counter to the desire to bring inflation down. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that the Fed did themselves any favors with the sort of mixed messaging that came out of yesterday's uh, events. Yeah, i just yeah. add a quick thing to that. 
in, in recent last couple of decades, economists have started to look at the use of alternative tools in addition just to the short setting of the short-term interest rate. And I think Maury rightly pointed to the tone and sometimes what's called forward, forward guidance. They will be a little more uh, mm -hmm. direct about what they're likely to do in an effort to affect longer-term interest rates, not just shorter-term interest rates. And uh, people have now gotten to the point where they're textually analyzing the comments of mm. the Federal Reserve chairs and matching it with optimistic words and pessimistic words. Um, I, I think that's fine. I, I agree with Maury that the, uh, that the message was a little softer than might have been. But uh, in any event, I think in some sense, this is uh, of a second order consideration at this point. I think uh, unless something unusual happens, uh, there are only going to be one or two more modest interest rate hikes. And unless inflation proves a lot more stubborn than the base case looks like right now. Well, let me follow up on that question. So what's your best guess for when inflation will come down to the Federal Reserve's goal of 2% annually? Well, with a wide distribution, 2024, late 2024 maybe. How about you, Maury? Yeah, I, I would say if things go well, that's kind of the, you know, in a, in a positive scenario, that's what we would expect. And that's also sort of a softish landing, what, what Jay Powell called a softish landing scenario. It wouldn't be until then. So let me follow up on that soft landing idea. Do you think it's possible that inflation can come down without leading to a recession and job losses? Well, a couple of things about that. First of all, yes, of course, it's possible. As Maury said earlier, such instances are rare. Mid-90s mid was one example. But uh, so we shouldn't rule it out. History suggests it's a hard thing to manage, particularly with something as blunt as interest rates, with a lot else going on, a lot of other puts and calls, uh, you know, shocks to the economy, and so on. However, um, I think it's worth remembering that, as Maury put it earlier, is it a false dawn, et cetera, that there's some possibility this will, will drag on and uh, unless there's a, a very big shock to the economy, say, from external forces, for example, or uh, we wind up having a much deeper problem in the financial sector than anyone anticipates right now from the data. Um, I think it is possible. I think the odds of a soft landing are decent if you have a broad interpretation of what soft means. If you have a very What's narrow interpretation? interpretation. If you have a... That this, there's slower growth, and inflation comes down peri passu gradually, and we're, we're all happy. Um, I would say there's one other thing, and it's the biggest question mark in my mind about what's going to happen. Uh, first of all, the way a recession is, is announced historically by the, the National Bureau of Economic Research Business Cycle Dating Committee, Maury and I are both research associates of NBR, but not on that committee, um, they have increasingly in recent years focused they're supposed to look at four things. Increasingly, they've weighted employment, payroll employment, the most. Um, the biggest uncertainty, the potentially most important uncertainty to me, is how the broader economy, not just in the tech sector, where there have been a lot of layoffs, but the, the broader economy reacts at a time when it's been very hard to hire workers for a long time. So will they hoard workers, not lay off as many as they normally would, uh, et cetera? That's hard to know. We just got the most recent data showing there's now 1.9 job openings for every unemployed person. This is kind of an historically unprecedented time to be talking about this. And for the last 
two, three years, even going back just right before COVID, especially smaller businesses were having a very hard time attracting workers. And so I think that's, that's something I'm trying to pay close attention to. And it's interwoven with lots of things, policies that are fairly generous during COVID, during COVID and have continued, some of which should be gradually uh, phased out. That made it easier for people to stay home and not work. There's still, been a, there's still a bid-ass spread between employees' desire to work more remotely than employers would like them to. That's been narrowing. So those are a variety of things that I look at. Um, and uh, I would say right now that I'm, I, my guess is layoffs relative to the state of the measured by GDP and so on uh, probably be somewhat less than we would have expected from historical experience because of this phenomenon. Thank you. So let me move to a favorite topic, the stock market. Um, so I'm sure we're all delighted that January has been much better than last year. But uh, when will the stock market fully recover? Well, um, first of all, <laughs> um, we should figure out where it was, which was selling at 23 times earnings, kind of quite unprecedented basically heavily supported by virtually zero interest rates for a long time. And a huge part of a run-up in the stock market, say the S&P 500, was the vastly disproportionate uh, run-up in large tech company shares, uh, anticipating low interest rates and continued rapid growth. Uh, that was a kind of a false, uh, false presumption from the very torrid rate in 2020 and 2021 during COVID when they were hiring like mad. So Amazon, I think, announced 12,000 layoffs, but they hired 30,000 people in this period. But if you take a look at that, uh, that wasn't going to continue. That was going. There's some air going to come out of that anyway. Uh, and we're generally with higher interest rates, but especially for rapidly growing stock, uh, rapidly uh, stocks of companies that were rapidly growing. Uh, that that was going to take the biggest hit in that. And now it's down to the high teens. Uh, still a bit above normal, but interest rates. Real interest rates may be a bit lower than historical for a long time. So I think it's, uh, it's more fairly valued now than it was at this peak. Um, so if you mean fully recovered, uh, I don't know how much further it has to go to be fully recovered. I wouldn't take the benchmark of where it was before the initial uh, hit with COVID and then the big run-up that uh, also occurred, by the way, in, in the aftermath of the financial crisis and Great Recession. The stock market recovered much more rapidly than employment and output. So I don't know if that's going to be the new trend, but low interest rates certainly help stocks, particularly those of companies that are growing rapidly. Dr. Boskin, let me ask you another question about the market. Based on the current economic forecast and your personal views, what is the most attractive investment to make in 2023? <laughs> well, <laughs> when uh, my undergraduates ask me about that, I say the first thing is, well, you can make 20% by not running up credit card debt. So uh. that's, that's the easy one. And it's hard to make 20% in anything else. However, uh, looking at it, I think bonds have become a little more attractive, particularly for people who are a little risk averse. And uh, maybe that's more generally an older population. Um, but I, I still think uh, if you have a long horizon, that I'd be primarily in a broad-based, low-cost-to-execute low stock Socks, maybe s and p five hundred fund or a broader fund or something like that, which should be a, a big base part of your portfolio, and you should try to write out 
market ups and downs. That's trying to bet on the timing of the market is, uh, is uh, for especially for people who aren't getting paid a lot of money to make those, and I would call them guesses, um, <laughs> uh, I think is probably not a wise idea. Dr. Obsfeld, are you in agreement? I, yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I think you know the market is basically recovered at this point. If, if uh, you know, interest rates return to very low levels, it could, it, we, could, we could enter into another period of speculation, such as we saw uh, a while ago uh, before the Fed started its hiking cycle. But, um, uh, you know, right now, uh, what you can earn in treasuries looks, looks pretty good if you want to park money. And if you, if you can, uh, you know, if you're at the age of my children and you're facing a long investment horizon, then uh, probably stocks will be a good, a good bet. So let me turn to the labor market, which you talked briefly about. Uh, even though in, in where we live we, and we see a lot of headlines about layoffs, in fact, it's true that, as you pointed out, the U.S. market, the labor market is extremely strong and has been uh, for a while. Um, is there any sign of the labor market easing, and do you have an outlook for the rest of 2023? Yeah, I, 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 just to be honest, I think it's a huge open question that we don't have a lot of data. I think it's a pretty unprecedented situation to be facing a slowdown or recession and, and have um, so many job openings and firms facing this conundrum, do I keep people I would normally have laid off in an analogous situation because it's been so hard to hire and, and retain people? Uh, so uh, I, I think that the labor market remains stronger than might have been projected based on previous experience for the slowdown. Uh, but I do think that we, we will see this spread some. I think Maury's right that uh, a, a really soft landing uh, that you don't even notice you've landed uh, on an airplane analogy, um, I think is probably unlikely. But uh, I, I think that I'm not looking for unemployment to get up to levels it was at, not only in deep recessions, the 10 or even 10% in the aftermath of the beginning of the Great Recession from the financial crisis or to the, you know, the even higher levels in the COVID layoffs. But um, I don't even think it's going to get up to the 7.7% or so it's gotten in previous allegedly mild recessions, which were shorter duration by themselves. But uh, I'd be surprised if it didn't, if, if the layoffs didn't spread some. Uh, I think it's important to remember, especially if you're here in the Bay Area, that the, the employment at the tech companies that are in the headlines are a very tiny fraction of the total labor force. And of course, technology is a larger fraction of the labor force more broadly because most firms have IT departments, for example. So not all tech workers work for Amazon and Apple and Google. An oracle. So I think it's important to look at what's happening elsewhere, but we're going to see layoffs elsewhere. I think they'll just be uh, not as dramatic. There's also a new element in this, which is uh, California has the WARN Act, W-A-R-N, so you have to announce layoffs. Now, if you're, laying, if you're shutting down a, a line of business, but you're still hiring somewhere else, you don't put, you report the net number, you report the gross number. Mm. So we'll have to pay some attention to that as well. So I don't think it's going to be pleasant, but it's not going to be nearly as bad as we've had recently, uh, unless something goes much, much, uh, there's a much bigger shock than is currently, currently expected. 
So speaking of shocks, um, the, the ratio of the U.S. Uh, national debt is the largest as a ratio to GDP that it's been since the end of World War II. Is this something that we should be worried about? Well, I tend to be somewhat hawkish on deficits and debt. Uh, I believe that uh, when you're running deficits and you, the debt is the accumulation of all previous deficits net of any surpluses, which we haven't run very often. Um, and so it's now uh, a little under 100% of GDP if you exclude the Fed's holdings and the Social Security Administration and so on, uh, which is more or less where we were in the immediate aftermath of World War II. What got us out of that conundrum was we had very rapid growth after World War II. So we mostly grew our way out of it. Um, the, gov the public sector was much smaller then. Um, it's grown immensely relative to GDP, and it's changed from mostly doing goods and services, the military, roads, stuff like that, to uh, now being a transfer of income and a social insurer with Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and so on. Uh, so we have a, a more robust, if imperfect, safety net. Uh, so when we look at all that, it, it seems to me uh, we have to really think about what we're borrowing the money for. That's left out of the conversation. Um, there are some things that make sense to borrow for. President Roosevelt financed three quarters of World War II with debt. It was the right thing to do because we would have to have an immense tax increase. It would be much worse for the economy. Um, so if you have a, if you have a big a public investment buildup that's temporary for a few years, uh, the interstate highway system, the Reagan military buildup, which helped uh, I think most foreign policists would say helped end the Cold War without firing a shot. It might make sense to borrow for that because in addition to the swings in taxes you'd have to have, which are disruptive, they're also doing things that are providing, us, providing security for future generations. So they're not in, as intergenerationally inequitable as if we were taking that money and spending it on current consumption. Um, so we should evaluate, in my view, and target the spending better uh, and be careful that we're not just borrowing. Alexander Hamilton famously said, our first Treasury Secretary, who argued for the federal government to assume the revolutionary war debts of the states, which, the states, which put the states in a very difficult position, that it was the price of liberty. Now we borrow money to fund growing entitlement payments. That will eventually stop. Social Security and Medicare trust funds are going to not be able to make full payments on the, on the projected benefits later this decade. So we're going to have to figure out how we're going to deal with this problem. And I think it's going to be politically disruptive. We should try to make it uh, not so economically disruptive if we can make some sensible decisions and have things phasing gradually and have grace periods, et cetera. Dr. Absfeld, would you like to comment on that? Yeah. Uh, you know, again, I, I, I agree. I don't think the level of federal debt itself is, is the big problem right now. I mean, it's not great, obviously. but. Um, it's really the entitlements uh, the, and the demographics that are, that are really making Social Security and Medicare unsustainable. You know, basically, um, uh, we have to tax our children, who, some of whom, many of whom are having a tougher time in the labor market. Uh, there's been slower population growth, and we have to fund, fund these things. And uh, young generations, which are actually still pissed off about what happened during COVID, <laughs> uh, rightly feel that there's some element of un unfairness here. At the same time, you look in Washington, and both major parties now agree that entitlement should not be touched. Not, not everyone in those parties, but you know, a large swath of the Republican Party. And, that, and so there's a fight 
about the debt limit, which is focused on discretionary spending, which is, you know, a third of the, the budget. And that's just not going to really be, be impactful. Um, one solution or one piece of a solution would be in terms of uh, coming to a consensus on immigration in a way that would allow more immigration, particularly high-skilled immigration. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. So um, we, really, we really are in a pickle. And um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how the dysfunction ends. I would just add something at the risk of intruding on Maury's international expertise. Our, our demographics are challenging, as you just said. We, we, you know, the ratio of people over 65 or pick any other age. I used to think of that as old age. I don't anymore. <laughs> um, in any event, um, uh, in the U.S., and the ratio of retirees to workers is quite a bit smaller than in many other parts of the world. Japan uh, it's, is really the labor force is shrinking. We have places where the population is shrinking. Russia, the population is apparently shrinking, if you believe the data. Uh, there are parts of Western Europe, or many parts, uh, um, Italy perhaps, in, in the worst shape in that regard. Uh, so the demography is, is really, really difficult. About half of the growth of Social Security benefits that are projected are due to demography, and about half are due to rising real benefits over time per, per beneficiary. Uh, so there are many solutions that have been out there. Some have tried and worked okay in the past. Um, but there will have to be some, eventually, some coming uh, to terms with, with this. And, um, you know, we've, we economists have been arguing about this for decades. <laughs> the last time we made any major revisions to the entitlement programs uh, was in 1983. So uh, we're now four decades later. And what seemed to be obvious from the projections is now very much in front of us in the next few years. And we've been running deficits pretty much ever since. Um, so I'm going to shift to uh, so the international global economy uh, so, and, and focus on you, uh, Dr. Obsfeld. So a question about the global economic fallout from the war in Ukraine. Um, has led to higher food prices, energy prices, disruptions in global trade. How do you see the impacts of that playing out in 2023? Well, bef even before the um, Ukraine war broke out, uh, global energy prices were high and um, global food prices were, were historically high. And um, these, these, these two go together in a way because... Um, you know, high energy price, high oil prices draws corn into ethanol. Um, uh, natural gas is a big component of fertilizers. So they, they really go together. And we were in bad shape before the war in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine drove everything into overdrive. Uh, and if you look at where we are now, um, prices have kind of dropped back to where they were before, um, both because markets have adjusted and because countries have worked very hard to find alternative sources of supply. So one of the reasons for the development that, that Mike mentioned before, the, uh, the, the uh, surprising resi resilience of, uh, of Europe to the, uh, the energy situation, is they've done, they've done a great job in uh, amping up their supplies of natural gas from sources other than Russia. They're also benefiting from an unseasonably warm, warm winter. So. Um, you know, in some sense, we're 
back where we were price-wise, we're not back where we were um, geopolitically in the sense that the sanctions are still there and um, uh, the, the, this, this whole process of, of, of sanctioning uh, and of geopolitical, um, um, well, an increase in geopolitical tensions has really accelerated the, the sort of deglobalization trend uh, which we had already started to see even before before COVID, which COVID itself helped accelerate accelerate somewhat. Um, and the way that proceeds is, I think, one of the one of the one of the big fallouts of of the war, but also of of prior developments. And it's certainly something that's going to be negative for growth, negative for consumers, uh, possibly negative for world peace going forward. I mean, on that topic, do you see the deglobalization, which uh, s the world was globalizing more and more since the end of World War II, and now we've seen a reversal? Do you see do you see any changes in that reversal? Do you see any hope for global cooperation? Um, I think global cooperation is more necessary than ever, and it's a shame that um, that. Um, it is broken down to to the extent that it has. Um, basically, you know, I sort of view view the world now as as retreating much more to the kind of alignment we had in the in the Cold War period. With uh, you know, we've got the West, which includes uh, you know broadly defined Korea, Korea, Japan, Singapore, countries like that. Um, the uh, communist or former communist bloc. You know, Russia and China are sort of uncomfortably glommed together there because I think the Chinese have serious misgivings about what Vladimir Putin is doing. Um, and then there's this big non-aligned world. And um, uh, nobody quite has the confidence they used to have that uh, trade or financial relations will continue in the way that they have. You know, when, when uh, the U.S., uh, you know, when the West seizes a country's international reserves um, or, or freezes them, I shouldn't say seize, but freezes them, that's, that's, that's a big deal. Um, you know, the U.S. froze Japan's international reserves in 1940 and embargoed uh, uh, shipments of U.S. oil to Japan. The U.S. was the biggest supplier, and that pretty directly led to you know the attack on on Pearl Harbor so we are we are kind of in in dangerous ground here and I think we need to uh, try to move back from the, this precipice that we're approaching I think there are a couple of global projects that really need attention and where the US has an opportunity to be more of a leader than it has um, one is in the climate area where um, you know, there would be broad buy-in, I think, from uh, the non-aligned world. And also in the area of international public health, where uh, there was a heightened awareness of the deficiencies in that area as a result of um, COVID. Now that, you know, COVID is over for us, we, we are not focused on that as much. But um, if you look at public health needs and, and the the threat of the emergence of, of other pandemics, which is very real. Um, the world as a whole could benefit from, from um, uh, really upping the game in terms of global public health infrastructure. 
the U.S. is better positioned than any country to be a leader here. It would not be that expensive, certainly compared to, uh, you know, raising military budgets. And, uh, you know, I would personally like to see this be, uh, you know, a major locus where the U.S. launches initiatives with the non-aligned world. Yes, Let me Dr. weigh in on a couple of those, because I, I think Maury's raised some important questions, and on many of them were in close agreement. I would just raise one implication and one observation. The implication, I would put it slightly differently, but I think we're in the same place, that Putin's invasion of Ukraine made it much more obvious how dangerous the world is and had become. I don't think it was the day before. I don't think we were in great shape. I think that there were growing tensions and there was always the risk of things um, spilling out and over. And so that, that in combination with the fact that our military has been um, slowly losing its competitive advantage relative to the militaries of other countries, both because we haven't recapitalized, we have many weapon systems that are long in the tooth, we have lots of other issues, the force has been shrinking, um, we're, you know, the Navy's too small to, and not equipped really in, to deal with uh, uh, anything in the uh, any, um, a Chinese military invasion of Taiwan, for example, should we choose to, do, to defend them, um, which is a whole other set of questions. So I think that that has raised the, uh, uh, the understanding more broadly in our leadership, um, especially in Congress, that um, we, the military is going to need to be rebuilt in several ways, and that's not going to be cheap. Hopefully we can get a big chunk of that from better efficiencies in the Pentagon, which are certainly there. There seems to be uh, something like uh, maybe an eighth of the budget that has actually nothing to do with defense, that has been put into the defense budget that really belongs elsewhere. Um, that's number one, uh, but also... That means, more properly mentioned, that all the attention is on one-third of the budget called discretionary spending, the part that's annually appropriated. The other stuff sort of on autopilot, Social Security, Medicare, interest payments, et cetera. So 40-plus uh, percent of that is defense spending. And if that, if anything, has to go up, I'll give you an example. And the last two Congresses, controlled by Democrats in both parties, substantially raised President Biden's budget request for the military, understanding that this was necessary. So it's likely to continue. That's focusing on a smaller part. So it's not going to be easy to achieve large savings from a modest part of the budget. Um, and, but in any event, that's going to play into the, the global tensions are playing into the, our budget policy, number one. That, that's a really excellent point, how uh, all the domestic challenges we're facing are being reinforced by global uncertainty and geopolitical tensions. Um, so let me just talk about China, which has been mentioned a couple times. So China's economy last year had one of the worst performances in decades for China. But since the very rapid reopening uh, uh, after the lockdowns, um, we're seeing uh, a resurgence, hopefully, of growth. What, what's your prediction, Dr. Obsfeld, for how China will do in 2023? And how will that affect the rest of the world economy? Well, after, after a very bad 2022, it's likely that they'll, they'll bounce back and grow at 5% or better in, in 2023. Uh, uh, in terms of the world economy, um, the uh, you know, Chinese growth is, is a large fraction of global growth. So 
that number that number is forecasted to be higher by the IMF as a result of opening. You know, significantly, it'll have a big effect, particularly in the Asian in the Asian region on countries like like Indonesia. Um, uh, it will also tend to push up global energy and commodity prices, which will, will complicate the tasks of central banks, including including the Fed. Um, I would I would just add a note of caution about the you know the general celebratory atmosphere about China and and China being back because part of, part of the problems that they've, they've had have not only been from the lockdown that was a severe problem but from a crisis in their real estate se sector where there's been a substantial overborrowing and overbuilding um, from a negative rate of population growth which they now have this is the aftermath of their one child policies it's you know come home to roost um, and from an increasingly authoritative management model that I think stifles innovation and growth in the private sector um, in the interest of uh, political, political cohesion. Um, we also don't know how bad will be the um, uh, human toll of, of COVID as, as uh, the, the virus passes through you know, a relatively um, less resistant population than what we've developed in, in Western countries. China also has very large SS capacity in some basic industries, mm -hmm. cement, steel, et cetera, that, um, that they're going to have to deal with over time. I'd also say one additional thing, as we, Maury was talking about geopolitical tensions and returning to more of a Cold War uh, blocks of, uh, of countries, the West, the unaligned, and the former communist countries, uh, is that this episode, uh, I think, really should have everyone reconsidering all the problems we bemoan about democracies and the temptation to look at an authoritarian country. They can make decisions faster and so on. They can force things to happen. Well, they can also make bad decisions. <laughs> and obviously, that's been happening increasingly. So for all, all we bemoan about our not being able to get together, solve our problems, the you know, the po political polarization, et cetera. Um, I'm still betting on democracies or other forces, demographic, catching up to the technological frontier, et cetera, that, that you know, we're, we're not going to take a lot of advantage of in the future. But just as you're thinking of uh, uh, geopolitical economy models for countries to emulate, I'd be a little cautious about the benefits of being so authoritarian. Look at Putin's latest move and she's Xi's latest move. That should tell you you can screw things up pretty badly, too. Thank you, Dr. Boskin. Um, this is the last question before we'll take some of the audience questions that were submitted. Uh, and this question is for Dr. Obsfeld. Uh, the European Union is arguing that President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which included record spending on climate and energy policies, discriminates against European Union companies could this turn into a trade war? Well, this is a very interesting situation. Uh, and I think it, it probably will not turn into a trade war, but it's turning into a competition of a different kind. Um, in Europe also has extensive green, green subsidies, but they have a system uh, which is partly due to their decentralization in which those are very hard for businesses to access. Um, just, you know, amazing bureaucracy, amazing delays. Businesses don't know where to go to, to access these. 
European leaders are going to have a meeting uh, uh, next week to respond to the, um, uh, you know, what, what to do about the Inflation Reduction Act. And one likely outcome is that they will greatly simplify this, um, this system and extend their green uh, subsidy program. Uh, there have been calls to set up a European fund so that the less prosperous countries, which traditionally have not been able to subsidize to the extent of Germany and France, can, can do so. Um, it's a sensitive issue because of the state aid rules within the EU, which try to preserve a, a level playing field by basically prohibiting, prohibiting state aid. These were relaxed for COVID. They were relaxed for the Ukraine war. And uh, they, they will probably be relaxed in some sense, or at least um, be brought under a new in, in institutional structure because of the Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, an unintended consequence is not so much a trade war, I think, but a, a war in green investment and subsidies. And that may not be, you know, the most horrible outcome for, for the world since reducing emissions has to be a global project. Yeah, that's an important point. Most of the growth of emissions is coming now from China and India and some other developing countries. Um, they argue in the international negotiations that we should be helping them, and many countries are looking for massive transfer payments, trillions of dollars of transfer payments from the rich countries, saying, you industrialize, you put all this stuff in the atmosphere, it's already there, uh, why are you trying to force us not to do it? Uh, so they want massive aid for their own potential green transitions. That's a really complicated uh, geopolitical problem. Uh, to give you one example, the SC Inflation Re Reduction Act had record green subsidies and green spending. You can argue about each one, whether it was perfectly targeted or whatever. But the estimate is that if kept in place by itself, it would reduce global temperature in 2100 by nine thousandths of one degree. So we've, we've got a ways to go. <laughs> and it's got to include everybody, particularly the places that are, have immense rapid emissions growth, not just the US and Europe. Thank you, Dr. Boskin. It, this is so interesting, um, Maury, what you're saying about the spurring the competition in Europe and, and leading, to, uh, leading to reform there. I actually have a research paper on, in, on this with Philippe Aguillon, where we show that if you have more competition in industrial policies, that leads to much better outcomes. So that's exactly what this is a case of, it sounds like. So we have some really great questions uh, from either our online uh, uh, individuals or people in the audience. Here's a, the first question. Can you please talk about investing in bonds as an asset class? What other alternative investments do you think will help counter the impact of the recession? Who would like to take this question? Well, I'm the one that said bonds are looking a little better than they had. We had this unprecedented situation where the stock market and the bond market collapsed simultaneously due to the rising interest rates. Um, so again, I'm a very big believer in a big part, of, a sizable part of your portfolio. If you're very well off, you can do all the speculation you want, but I have a sizable part of the portfolio in some combination of broadly based um, low-cost uh, funds, um, ETFs or mutual funds, if you prefer that. They have their different advantages and disadvantages. So I'd just be broadly based, um, 
depending on your tax bracket, it, different types of munis may be uh, attractive to you, et cetera. You can reduce the risk and shorten the term by buying what are called free refunded bonds, uh, mainly too esoteric mm -hmm. probably for most people. Uh, but generally, the portfolio should be gradually shifting from a more heavy stock emphasis to a gradual increase in the, in the bond uh, size. I think that's still a fraction of the portfolio. I think that's still good advice as you get older, as your risk tolerance gets, uh, um, gets uh, re it reduces. You get, you're worried more about risk. That may be due to age or something else, a family situation. You may have a huge need. You may have triplets that are going to go to college in the same year, and you need to make sure you have enough money to pay for that, et cetera. So you might want to think about those things. But generally, I'd access very low cost, uh, tiny, tiny fee, um, broad-based bond funds for your bond portfolio or the bulk of your bond portfolio. Thank you, Dr. Baskin. Um, Dr. Obsfeld, do you have any thoughts on this? And also, there was a question about alternative investments, uh, alternative investments during a recession that could help counter the impact of the in recession. Well, you know, if you, if you think a recession may be coming, bonds are also attractive because if and when the Fed cuts interest rates to counter the recession, they go up in value. So, um, uh, you know, but, but it's complicated because, the, the, you know, as we've seen in the past, the, the timing of stock market recovery is not well synchronized with what's going on in the real economy. You know, basically, once, once the stock market is convinced that all the bad news has been learned, um, <laughs> even if things are very bad, <laughs> that's when people go in. So you're, you're always subject to, you know, as a, as a non-professional investor, you know, you kind of may be chasing the market. I would also say, add about bonds that, um, uh, you know, there are safer bonds and less safe bonds. And right now, one uh, uh, feature of the bond markets is that the spread between uh, risky corporate bonds and um, uh, uh, high-grade corporate bonds is very, is very compressed. It's one, it's one symptom of easy financial conditions. And it's kind of a worrisome fact from the standpoint of the Fed. And if we get into a recession scenario, um, those risky bonds, some of them are going to blow up. And so that's, that's not where you want to be, particularly given the, the spread. You want, you want safe bonds, you know, government bonds, uh, you know, probably would be, would be the best bet. Thank you. So uh, here's a new question on AI. Um, I should say, as the dean of a business school, uh, chat GPT is a very hot topic of conversation. Uh, the question here is, might expanded implementation of artificial intelligence systems lead to a productivity increase that lowers inflation faster than we expect? I think that's very unlikely in the short horizons we've been talking about over the next year or two. Maybe over decades it might. Uh, great economist at MIT, Robert Solo, uh, indicated once that uh, computers are everywhere except in the productivity statistics, but they eventually did show up but with a long lag. Uh, often, when you have a new technology, it tends to be, its early adopters tend to be in that sector, and, or the big users of it before it spreads more generally. And you know there are times where uh, we've had major technological breakthroughs where the commercial adaptation had nothing to do with what they were invented for. James Watt invented the steam engine to lift water out of coal mines, didn't envision locomotives. Um, Marconi's transatlantic wireless transmission, he was trying to compete 
with the telegraph and point-to-point -point communication never envisioned radio or cell phones. So uh, we can't be sure. And uh, there are some people who think AI is a bit overhyped, but it's working its way into the operations of lots of things, so machine learning and AI, uh, looking for patterns. And uh, that can be useful in a variety of circumstances. But my, my best guess is it will be a while uh, before it might have a, a noticeable impact on overall productivity. Dr. Absell, yeah, you're I, in agreement. I'm total agreement. Okay, so I'm going to ask, uh, thank you so much for your great questions. Um, since it's toward the end of the program, I'm going to ask our guests a final question. Um, but before I do that, it's interesting. Um, this week, we, uh, we hosted uh, Jensen Huang, who's the CEO of NVIDIA, who came and spoke at Haas. And he was asked about ChatGPT. Um, and he said that when, that, when ChatGPT came out, that was, ha is having the same impact as, um, as, the, um, as when the iPhone first was produced by Apple. So certainly our tech CEOs think that uh, that is having a huge impact. Um, well, we're not going to be giving as many take-home exams, I can assure you of that. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we won't be doing as many in-class exams using a computer either. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, so here's the last question. Um, you, you, you touched on this briefly, um, but I think it's a great way to end uh, the conversation, although it's not the most cheerful question. How severe are the tech layoffs in the Bay Area? Is it no big deal or sim and simply a rebalancing? Thus far, it's a rebalancing, I believe. As I said, we've had, we had massive hiring for many firms in 2020, 21, and earlier this year. And now they realize they've overdone it. And most of the layoffs that have been announced so far don't go anywhere close to where the, we were before they started the big hiring boom in the last couple of years as people were at home watching, uh, you know, watching Netflix and as demand for personal computers and other things of that sort of consumer electronics soared. Um, so thus far, but um, if, if the slowdown is more substantial than a fairly benign slowdown or mild recession, it could be much worse. Um, you know, we're, we have some concentration in this, but uh, uh, so the Bay Area is, I think, more, more vulnerable if this becomes more dramatic or considerably more dramatic um, than some other places which are more heavily focused in, or in their concentration of businesses and occupations outside of tech. Um, but it really depends on the economy whether it becomes much larger. Thus far, while it's obviously painful for somebody to be laid off, if you're unemployed, you're 100% unemployed. If we have 3.5% unemployment, it's not like you're, you're only working 96.5% of the time for everybody. So it's going to be personally painful to those people. But it's still a fairly decent job market to find other types of jobs. Maybe it won't be as good, but you maybe you'll go work. You, you, you may be laid off at Amazon, but you may wind up going to work at another business that has some tech, tech uh, shortages. Work that, that actually confirms what's happening to our alumni from Haas. Those who are uh, losing their roles are able to find um, new roles within one month or two months. What about you, Maury? What do you think? Yeah, well, clearly we're not seeing anything in the, in the aggregate statistics. The labor market remains incredibly strong. You know, by some measures, it 
actually strengthened last week, last month, instead of uh, instead of uh, deteriorating more. So, uh, uh, you know, the, the the question is what you know. I, I'm not in the heads of these CEOs, so I don't know what they're seeing going forward. You know, obviously, it's not not costless to to hire new employees, so they're they're certainly not seeing a vibrant um, ecosystem for themselves going forward, and so that could be a little concerning. But in and, in and of itself, these are these are very localized and uh, and uh, um, could be just idiosyncratic to what happened during COVID. We don't hear about it as much because they don't have to announce. But announce it, but there are a fair number of firms that have short-run temporary hiring freezes while they see what happens also. So that'll eventually play out one way or the other. Um, I've been asked to, to add one other last question. Um, so uh, this truly is our last question. So the question is, can you talk about how we can move more swiftly toward sustainability versus growth in our economic policies and thus more quickly address global warming? Quite a last question. Yeah, uh, it may not be popular in this audience, uh, but I think that the only way we will maintain, pun sustain, sensible environmental policies like a revenue neutral carbon tax or something which most economists, myself included, have advocated for a long time rather than the individual industrial policy kinds of things various types of subsidies and entrenched uh, subsidies, um, is if we have good enough economic growth that the population will support them. If you look almost everywhere in the world when there's a big increase in energy prices, for example, where that's the yellow vests in, in, in France, the reaction here in the United States uh, that caused all sorts of consternation. Um, and if you look at public opinion polls, um, Every time there's any sort of slowdown or economic dislocation, climate or the environment plummets from, you know, a, not the top, but a, you know, fourth or fifth or sixth on a 15 or 20 list, down close to the bottom. So I think we shouldn't think of um, this quite as the trade-off the question posed. I think we need to maintain good growth, rising living standards as, uh, as part of, in combination with now, that may mean things will have to grow a little more slowly or a little more gradually, uh, but I think that makes a lot more sense than having, a, having something start and then abruptly be reversed, et cetera. Uh, so I think you need to think a little more deeply about the interaction of growth and the environment. And I think the only way we, we make a dent in this problem, including the, the, the problem that Mike mentioned of what do you do about India, China, you know, emerging markets, uh, is the development of new uh, sor renewable sources of energy that are cheaper than fossil fuels. I mean, that's ultimately where, you know, the only sustainable change is going to come. And I don't know whether it's going to be hydrogen or whether it's going to be something else. But, um, you know, I remember when I, when I was in graduate school, my first job as a research assistant was for an MIT professor. I'm sure, I'm sure you remember him, Marty Weitzman. Oh, sure. Who had a project at the MIT Energy Lab on photovoltaic cells. This is 1977. And these things were so far out of commercial viability, like you can't imagine. It was really like, you know, space age, visionary stuff. And here we are, <laughs> you know. So, um, you know, I think if you're going to put resources into something, you know, government resources, policies, um, 
that's that's what's going to work. I mean, I you know, carbon tax, yes, theoretically, great idea. You know, we should do that. It's politically problematic, and I just just don't think the payoff is 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 that big. I mean, obviously, that also affects innovation, but not in a way that's important enough to to um, um, you know to ma to matter. And you know, if if we were to think about the level of carbon tax that would really reflect the kind of threats out there from tipping points and climate, it would be so high as to be, you know, just, you know, it, it would not be do doable. So, you know, new technologies, newer sources of, of renewables, that's really where the yeah. payoff is. I, I totally agree with the latter part. Let me say the proposal I prefer is not just a carbon tax, it's reducing other taxes, peri positive, including more growth-oriented taxes. Um, corporate taxes, income taxes, and the like. But that aside, I think Maury's exactly right, new technology. Uh, but it has to be at a scale that actually deals with the right. energy ecosystem. And there is the, the public, I think, is not adequately informed of the scale of this stuff. You're talking about trillions of this and billions of that. It's mm -hmm. not a bunch of people putting solar panels on the roof, whatever uh, that may do. This has to be fundamental throughout broad swaths of the global economy. That is unlikely to be able, uh, possible anytime soon. It takes a while, even once we get something that tends to work, um, to get it to scale, to be able to produce it. And then you're dealing, you know, if you're dealing with solar stuff, for example, where, where do we get the lithium? Where do we get the rare earths? Where do we get the cobalt? You want to rely on China with the horribly dirty mining? You want to rely on the Congo for cobalt? At some point, we're going to have resource constraints on what we do to be able to scale to that massive amount. So it's not just getting the current stuff to be better, but there's going to have to be fundamental advances in material science that play into this, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's important to do, and I think Maury's exactly right. The package of things has to, has to have some heavy emphasis on technology, and some of that's going to be government-funded, some of it will be privately funded, but the government stuff should be focused on stuff that really has an opportunity to do really big breakthroughs longer term, stuff that's going to slightly speed something up for a few years. It's just not going to add up to the volume that's going to have to be done to, to have an energy sector that actually is able to keep standards of living from plummeting. Thank you so much. Well, on a more positive note, um, the, uh, it's certainly the case that eliminating uh, subsidies to fossil fuels could both promote a sustainable world and promote growth, since subsidies um, are not necessarily growth promoting. So that would certainly be something um, that, for example, uh, some people are pushing. And it's it's also true that we the the costs of some sources of clean energy have come down so far that a huge percentage now of American um, energy needs are actually satisfied by. Um, clean energy. But on that note, I want to thank you all. I'm sure you'll have more conversations you'll want to have um, with uh, both Dr. Boskin and Dr. Obsfeld at lunch. Thank you so much for this timely and important conversation on the economy. We'd also really like to thank the Bank of America for supporting this program. The video from today's program will soon be found on the Commonwealth Club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org and on the national radio broadcast and podcast. I'm Ann Harrison, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.